Would you like your life to get easier, safer, and more efficient? Cybersecurity can bring that to you and to government. By signing documents digitally, we think we save about 2% of our GDP annually. And that's a significant amount of money. That is about the same amount of money we spend on national defense. Alabama is one of the most biodiverse places on the planet Earth, and one of our rarest creatures now has new protections here in North Alabama. In terms of what this fish needs, there's a solution that benefits the ecosystem and also can benefit human health, because human health depends on healthy ecosystems. We are dependent on the environment around us, even though we don't think about that on a day-to-day basis. Stick around for the next hour and also learn about a calendar full of amazing bicentennial events for you to celebrate. The Public Radio Hour is coming up next, here on member-supported 89.3 WLRH. Good evening. Thanks for joining us for this week's Public Radio Hour, our public affairs spotlight on special programs and homemade radio features. I'm your host tonight, Brett Tannehill. And tonight, we'll hear about more amazing upcoming bicentennial events that you can enjoy and have a very interesting conversation with Estonian Ambassador Jonathan Vasevyov, who was in Huntsville recently. He'll share some insights on cybersecurity in his country and how that has helped make the lives of its citizens easier, safer, and more efficient. But first, we're excited to update a story we've been following for some time now regarding a tiny creature found only here in North Alabama one of the rarest fish on the planet. About a year ago, producer Katie Ganaway toured areas of a watershed near the incoming Mazda Toyota plant in Limestone County. At that time, the spring pygmy sunfish, a rare aquatic animal, was classified as a threatened species by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Its habitat had no federal protections. That is, until last month, when all that changed. Here's Katie, talking to conservationist Michael Sandell. Can you refresh us and describe this rare sunfish and the part of nature it lives in? Sure. The the spring pygmy sunfish is one of the smallest uh, freshwater fishes in North America, and it is related to species that are found throughout coastal regions of the southeastern United States, commonly known as the pygmy sunfishes. This one in North Alabama is strange because it's in a place that you don't find other related species. And it's also in only a few tributaries to the Tennessee River. And so it's very geographically restricted. Always has been, always will be, as far as we can tell, restricted to these very pristine and slow-moving creeks in North Alabama, one of them being Beaver Dam Creek. And like I said, we actually visited uh, some of the habitats that are considered fit for the sunfish to live in, uh, some that weren't as well. And since then, I understand that Mazda Toyota put a few million dollars into a conservation fund for the species and its habitat. So did you follow that? Whatever came of that? There is an agreement in place between Toyota and the Center for Biological Diversity and the Fish and Wildlife Service to create this fund to protect the species. I think the total is in the range of six million, but it's composed of different pieces. We're not sure yet how much is actually going to be put aside and used for annual or maybe multi-annual projects that need to be done to uh, restore habitat and that sort of thing. So the details are still fuzzy, but there is an agreement in place, and we're very happy about Toyota Mazda's willingness to put the resources up that are needed. 
And that's a big change from last year because there were none in place at the time that we both met. And there's been some big news to do with the sunfish in Limestone County. And can you tell us about what the Fish and Wildlife Service has done? Well, uh, we petitioned to have the, pl- the fish placed on the endangered species list in, I believe it was 2009, when we first put the petition in with the Center for Biological Diversity and wasn't listed until uh, quite a few years later. And, and that was the first step, right? Getting the fish on the list was the first step to making sure that we're going to take action to protect it. The, the second step with any endangered species listing is to protect the habitat because unless you're protecting the place where the animal lives or plant lives, there's very little recourse for fish and wildlife if something does happen to the animals or plants. And so getting that critical habitat designation is the most important part of listing, particularly for freshwater fishes that need the habitat to remain intact. The Endangered Species Act is almost toothless uh, unless the critical habitat comes along with it. So this mm-hmm. year, uh, after you know Toyota Mazda has agreed to protect the fish, Fish and Wildlife also were able to complete the delineation of that critical habitat within Beaver Dam Creek. So this was a 10-year-long wait, which is a very long time. And the Center for Biological Diversity, they tried to get the sunfish's habitat designated as critical habitat from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, as you said. And the announcement came in May, I think, that this year was the year that they are going to designate critical habitat for that species. And um, the areas I read that were covered under that are Blackwell Swamp, Beaver Dam Spring Creek, as we mentioned before. From what you've seen, do you think that there are still some threatening elements to the species near those areas, despite the recent protections that were implemented? Well, it depends on how you interpret that question. So this fish requires pristine conditions, pristine habitat, and we know that from decades of research. The things that are happening in Limestone County, suburbanization, industrial development, water resource infrastructure, and water treatment infrastructure, all of these things that are happening represent a threat intrinsically. They are a threat to anything that lives in those spring environments. And so those things aren't going to stop anytime soon. So the threats are there. Within the available regulations and working with you know, non-governmental organizations, almost everything that can be done to protect the fish, despite those developments, appears to be taking place and happening. Particularly with Toyota Mazda, you know, this new agreement to put up resources in case these threats have an impact is really the best case scenario. Well, I should say the second best case scenario. The best case scenario would be we were able to leave those areas in a pristine condition. They're not going to be in a pristine condition, but as a whole, the community seems to be coming together and making sure that any impacts are going to be abated with these agreements that are in place now. I wonder from your perspective, what could individuals do themselves in order to help prevent these habitats from being contaminated and forcing the species to go extinct? The most important thing in Alabama for ecologically aware citizens to do is to promote the biodiversity that we have and the appreciation for that biodiversity. Our biggest limitation as conservation biologists is education and making sure that people know what's in their backyard. In terms of recycling and limiting water use and preventing pollution of of stormwater infrastructure and all of these things, these are all very important. 
but those are usually handled at the corporate or government scale. Mm-hmm. As, on an individual basis, I just want to see people outside on Earth Day and learning and teaching others about these unique parts of our ecosystem that you can't see anywhere else in the world. Um, and just by educating particularly young people and uh, educating ourselves about this, we're going to protect it. We're going to appreciate it. And that's just our biggest limitation is, is just making sure that people are educated and aware. With this designation of critical habitat from the Fish and Wildlife Service, I understand that there are other rare species that could benefit from this. Could you tell us more about the creatures? I, I remember you mentioning a certain kind of snail. That's right. There is a federally endangered snail that currently that, that occupies the same habitat as the pygmy sunfish. And this snail has never received critical habitat. So Fish and Wildlife's decision to protect the habitat for the spring pygmy sunfish also protects the slender Campyloma snail, which is on the list. It's been on the list for a much longer time uh, than the spring pygmy sunfish. But again, because there was no critical habitat, there was no real teeth to the listing of that species. So we're getting a two-for-one here with regard to protecting endangered species. Uh, Additionally, there is a salamander that remains in the water. It never completes metamorphosis, and that's called a pedamorphism or neoteny. And these salamanders are living in the springs with the sunfish and with the snail, and they don't even have a name yet. So scientists haven't had time to determine exactly what species of salamander exists there, and they also could be in line for protection as well. So protecting these habitats are crucial for these rare species as well as the you know more common species living in, in those habitats. How do these habitats help them thrive? Through eons, the fish and other members of this community have adapted to the clear groundwater that's coming up in these springs. And springs generally are universally appreciated as valuable parts of the ecosystem. But to the animals and plants, their lives depend on that spring water. And so what that changes compared to a regular swamp or stream system is that you have continuous clear water that allows sunlight to feed the plants, right, and to allow them to undergo photosynthesis in the wintertime. You can see this on Google Maps. If you look at a, a winter satellite image, all of the terrestrial vegetation will be brown, but in the spring heads, you will see bright green vegetation that's feeding the plants, it's feeding, and that plant material feeds the invertebrates, the insects and crustaceans that live there. And that, of course, keeps that food chain going year-round. And over eons, like I mentioned, these animals become adapted to that constant food source. And so anything that disrupts that and that pollutes the water or clouds the water changes that annual constant food source. And it might create time periods when there is no photosynthesis in the spring water. And those conditions don't favor the survival of these endangered species that we're talking about. It is very important that this critical habitat designation has happened for the sunfish, for all the species uh, coexisting with the sunfish. So would you consider it a sort of victory for the rare one-inch fish? Or would you say that this is like a small step? Or what would you say? In terms of uh, what I'm going to see in my lifetime and what other conservation biologists like me see in our lifetime, uh, this is definitely a victory, but I want to put context to that, that it's not a victory over human interest, right? Like it's not Um, all end-all be-all. 
it's not an end-all, be-all, but it's also not, it's not always a competition between the needs of the ecosystem and the needs of the economy. And so in this case, there is a solution that is being worked out. It will never be the way it was before the Industrial Revolution, right? And so we'll always need to monitor this system. But in terms of what this fish needs, there's a solution that we're finding that benefits the ecosystem and also can benefit human health, right? Because human health depends on healthy ecosystems. We are dependent on the environment around us, even though we don't think about that on a day-to-day basis. We still need clean water. We still need clean air. And by saving this critical habitat, we're ensuring that generations from now, uh, that spring water will be available either for recreation or for, you know, water use by our descendants. And so it's not a victory over human interest. It's a victory alongside human interest and human development. So you mentioned that there needs to be some sort of monitoring in place, you know, since this designation has been placed. What sort of monitoring would that entail for this critical habitat designation? Whenever you have industry right next to the habitat that is used by endangered species, you have upped the ante with regard to data collection, data analysis, and the frequency at which all of this information needs to be collected so that there can be an appropriate response if something goes wrong. Toyota Mazda are doing what they need to do to protect the habitat, but that doesn't negate the chances of something going wrong. And eventually some system will fail, some other company will move in who they might not know the rules. And so something will happen that needs to be addressed. And that's what that conservation agreement is for. So it's sort of like a a general playbook for all companies that move in. Toyota Mazda can't be held accountable for the actions of other companies, but Mm -hmm. this resource that's being put aside and the committee that's going to govern the spending of that resource are able to make decisions when they're needed. And so back to that original point, you know, when you have industry right next to the habitat of endangered species, we need things in place like automated water quality monitors that are running 24-7. When this fish was living in the woods, living a quiet, peaceful life, right, we could collect data maybe twice a year and have a pretty good idea of how the population is changing through time. But then industry came in. Right. Now that we have this constant potential threat of disturbance, we need to collect a lot more data and be able to analyze and respond to any changes in that incoming information very quickly. Automated water quality monitors, we need to be sampling, you know, six times a year, assessing the invertebrate community, any changes in the population of that snail or the salamander or the uh, crayfishes and, and insects that live there. All of these things need to be monitored much more diligently. Any final thoughts for this issue? The community of Huntsville, Limestone County, Athens, the they're doing the right thing by protecting this ecological resource. And I am encouraged that this is taking place in the area in which it's taking place. There are other places in the country where this could have turned into a major argument and it could have turned into a major disagreement between industry and the communities and and the conservationists. And I am very optimistic about how this is going to play out over the next 10 and 20 years, so long as all of the things that have been promised, and those promises are going to be kept. Well, thank you so much for following up with us, Michael. It was really good to talk with you again. You too. Thank you, Katie. I appreciate it.
The Center for Biological Diversity reports the spring pygmy sunfish now enjoys more than 1,300 acres and 6.7 stream miles of habitat under federal protection. The fish currently occupies the Beaver Dam and Blackwell complexes, and prior spring and branch have been designated as a reintroduction site, essential to the species' eventual recovery and long-term survival. You're listening to the Public Radio Hour on member-supported 89.3 WLRH Huntsville Public Radio. This is our weekly public affairs spotlight on special programs and homemade radio features. One of our goals is to keep you informed of community events, and we've been giving that a little extra focus as Alabama continues to celebrate its bicentennial. Our community is hosting a wide array of events you can enjoy, and each month, Sally Warden, Executive Director of the Huntsville-Madison County Bicentennial Committee, has been stopping by to give us the lowdown. Thanks, Brett, so much for having me back. And, you know, I've talked about this now for months, but we had several things early in the year that I hope will be ongoing, one being uh, the uh, DNA genealogy conference that we held at UAH in conjunction with Hudson Alpha. And I hope that's something that we can do year after year, long after the bicentennial is over. We also had a great event where we invited all of the legislators here in order to learn a little bit more about Huntsville, another event that I hope carries on long after the bicentennial. Uh, Constitution Village had had an event recently where they debuted their brand new space, I suppose. That is right. It's all been refurbished, and that's when we reenacted the uh, arrival, surprise arrival, of President James Monroe to Huntsville 200 years to the exact date that it happened. So let's look ahead now, uh, and we'll start uh, with our good friends over at the Huntsville Botanical Garden because they have some really neat bicentennial events happening uh, in the area before you get to the garden and then once you um, get a ticket and get into the garden as well. So let's start with the Making Alabama Traveling Exhibit, uh, which is on display now through July 31st. That's right. This is at the Guest Center at the Botanical Garden. Right when you walk in the door, you head upstairs, and on the rotunda there, the circular rotunda that is in before the mission desk, has this exhibit from the Alabama Humanities Foundation. This exhibit has been traveling to all 67 counties in Alabama, and by the end of 2019, it will have hit them all. We're very fortunate here in Huntsville-Madison County to have this exhibit for two full months. And if you have admission to the garden, there's more things to see inside. That is exactly right. Um, after you enjoy the free Making Alabama exhibit, you can uh, go inside and test your knowledge about the state's symbols with a sa- scavenger hunt. They also have a replica of George Washington Carver's Jessup wagon, and you can learn about heirloom plants and traditional Alabama crops in their outdoor gardens. One thing about the Alabama traveling exhibit that I did want to hit on, though, is that it really really is a humanities exhibit. It's brought by to you by the Alabama Humanities Foundation, and it blends artistic collages, interactive computer tablets, and audios that have songs from Alabama or spoken words to tell the story of Alabama for the past 200 years. Uh, in addition, the, the garden has artwork from Don Dersham, who, who re- recently put together a book of photographs of all 67 counties in Alabama, as well as a state symbols mural of all of the state symbols by Laura Walker and paintings of local sites by Christina Wegman. By the way, Brett, did you know what the state 
uh, marine mammal is of Alabama. Oh, wait. Um, I'm going to say manatee. That is exactly correct. Yes. That is right. That is right. And I know this, the flowers. I was going to have camellia, to the, guess that. Yeah. The state um, fruit is the blackberry. Mm-hmm. So the, the uh, botanical garden has weaved all of those state items into a scavenger hunt. Lots of fun. Very cool. Always wonderful things happening over at the Huntsville Botanical Garden. Um, Also uh, happening at Constitution Hall Park, uh, the Bicentennial Summer continues now through August 1st uh, with a free speaker series. And I think we may have talked about this a little bit the last time you were here. We did touch on that, but now there's a little more meat to the bones and that I can tell you exactly what is going to be going on in the speaker series, as well as there is music every Thursday night and Saturday nights are free family fun night. All three, the Tuesday evening, the Thursday evening, and the Saturday evening are all free events. At the Speaker Series, they all are taking place in Constitution Hall itself. Upcoming topics um, include North Alabama beer and intoxicating history. You know, we had the first brewery here in Mm -hmm. in Huntsville. Uh, Also, Lou Sams will be talking about the bad girls of Madison County. This takes all of the characters in the cemetery stroll that were thought of as the bad girls, and they're putting together a whole event around the bad girls of Madison County. Other historical events are going to be talking about the sea. CSS Alabama, which was the submarine Alabama during the Civil War. So Thursday evenings, like I mentioned, they are going to be having live, free live music there. So grab a picnic supper and come listen. Mike Ball and the Madison Mountaintop Band, Solid Blue, Hearts of Grass are some of the ones that are coming up soon. Well, that sounds super exciting. Also, exciting things happening over at the Huntsville Museum of Art as they have the grand opening of We the People, Alabama's Defining Documents. And I'm really, really excited about this to see the original founding documents of Alabama here in Huntsville. That is right. Brad, this is truly an exhibit that is 200 years in the making. You can celebrate Alabama's bicentennial with the documents that defined our state and shaped the history. That includes the six constitutions as well well as the 1861 Ordinance of Secession. Then coming up on July 13th, another historical marker will be unveiled. Uh, Last weekend, uh, during the Juneteenth celebration, they debuted a new marker in downtown Huntsville, and this one is the unveiling of the marker that Uh, that honors the rebirth of Triana, and that's on July 13th. That's right. You know, Triana is celebrating its 200th birthday as well in 2019, but there was a period when the government went dormant. And then some city leaders, um, including Mayor Clyde Foster, led the way to have the rebirth of the city of, of the town, rather, of Triana. And there, this is going to be honored by a historical marker unveiling sponsored by the Triana Historical Society on July the 13th at 10 o'clock. And one of the last events we'll talk about is kind of a neat merging of Bicentennial Celebration and the big Apollo 11 uh, anniversary coming up as uh, Independent Musical Productions teams up with the Huntsville Symphony Orchestra for Moon Dreams. That's on July 14th at the Mark C. Smith Concert Hall, and this sounds like a really special event. It is. You know, Brett, I mentioned that so many of the arts organizations in the Huntsville-Madison County area latched on 
to either the Apollo or the Bicentennial theme for their programming for 2018 and 2019. And this is exactly what I was talking about. Moon Dreams is a special season extra that tells the story of a young man who dreamed about the moon, and it follows his story into adulthood. From Sputnik to Apollo 11, Moon Dreams is going to highlight Alabama's rocket legacy in a concert-style version of a Broadway theater-style version that debuted in Huntsville in 2000. And as we approach that big Apollo week, uh, July 13th through the 20th, the events are piling up left and right. And so, Sally uh, Warden, let's conclude our conversation with uh, a highlight of just a couple of uh, unknown events that are happening uh, that week. Okay. Well, one thing on July the 13th, that week kicks off with a car show. There will be hundreds of cars out at the Space and Rocket Center that uh, many of them uh, German, as you can imagine, and many of them from that era as well. So that will be a lot of fun. That uh, Friday night, um, July the 19th, is going to be the Dancing in the Streets in downtown Huntsville around the square. Uh, And there'll be a procession led by the Lunar Rover into downtown Huntsville that evening. But more activities than we could talk about in the time we have going on with Apollo that week. Also on July, that Friday, July 19th, uh, that is when the national broadcast of the recent First Take with Science Friday episode that we uh, recorded at the Rocket Center makes its big national debut. And that's one of the really great things about all the bicentennial events and the Apollo 11 events is it's been neat to see all of the different civic groups and nonprofits and other organizations kind of doing their own thing, but it all sort of fits together into this one big giant party, and everyone is doing something to shine the spotlight on Huntsville and Alabama in a really special way. You are exactly right. I couldn't be happier with the way that all the groups have come together to put their own mark on what Alabama's 200th birthday and the Apollo 50th anniversary means to them. Sally Warden, the Executive Director of the Huntsville-Madison County Bicentennial Committee. Thanks for stopping by again. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. You're listening to the Public Radio Hour on member-supported 89.3 WLRH Huntsville Public Radio. I'm your host tonight, Brett Tannehill. You can find a podcast of this show and other locally produced programs on our website at wlrh.org. Just look under Programs and then click on the Public Radio Hour. Or you can go to the WLRH Facebook and Twitter pages. Coming up next, we'll hear from Sarah Williamson as she explores how cybersecurity has improved the quality of life in Estonia as she talks with Estonian Ambassador and former Minister of Cyber Defense, Jonathan Vasevyov. That's coming up right after this break. Thanks for listening. WLRH loves local news. We're the only radio station in the area that offers a daily local newscast. Hear local stories during the Tennessee Valley News Update. Hear local voices in our interviews during Morning Blend, Valley Sounds, and our award-winning public affairs show, The Public Radio Hour. If you love local news, then support the station that loves it too. WLRH 89.3 Huntsville. Next time on City Arts and Lectures, Jelani Cobb joins fellow New Yorker writer Hilton Owls to discuss the cultural context and implications of Barack Obama's presidency and the state of American politics. That's next time on City Arts and Lectures on this public radio station. 
Catch City Arts and Lectures here Thursday nights at 8 on 89.3 HD1 WLRH. Huntsville Community Chorus presents Mamma Mia! July 12th through 21st at Randolph's Thurber Arts Center. You can enjoy Huntsville's premier local production of the smash hit musical that brings the timeless songs of ABBA to an enchanting tale of love, laughter, friendship, and weddings. Ticket info is online at thechorus.org and at 256-533-6606. This is the Public Radio Hour on member-supported 89.3 WLRH. A little less than 30 years ago, the people of Estonia did not have access to landline telephones, much less any other kind of technology. Now, Estonia is one of the most cybersecure nations in the world. For them, personal income taxes can be completed in less than three minutes. Doctor visits are free of paperwork, and nobody visits the DMV anymore for their driver's license or car tax. Why is that? Well, last Thursday, producer Sarah Williamson rang up Estonian ambassador and former minister of cyber defense, Jonathan Vesevioff, on the phone to talk about the safety of online life and what Alabama and America might learn from Estonia, and how does he handle the demands of being an ambassador? Well, it's enjoyable. It's not demanding at all. I mean, it's physically demanding sometimes. Right. Because this country is obviously huge. Yeah. So last week, or uh, what day is it? Uh, it's, uh, Thursday. Thursday. <laughs> Thursday, right? So, during the, uh, so I, I've been to Arizona, Alabama, mm-hmm. Georgia, and D.C. this week. So that's uh, taxing, to say the least. But it's very enjoyable, of course, to see the different, different corners of this country, very uh, diverse, uh, very interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, so mentally not, not demanding at all, to be honest with you. Okay. I shouldn't tell this publicly, because uh, then people might uh, think my job is too easy. <laughs> but no, it's a, it's, a, it's a blast. Well, that's good. So you're, you're passionate about what you do, I can tell. Oh, I am. Yes, yeah. indeed. Oh, that's great. Well, Estonia is one of the most, if not the most, cybersecure nation in the world. Like, how did that happen? Well, it first um, started in the 1990s. um, And before we became very secure uh, online, we just simply went online. Uh, We created um, uh, what we like to call the first digital government uh, in the world. Most uh, services that the government provides are nowadays um, online. Uh, people do their taxis online in less than three minutes. Uh, we even vote online um, at our parliamentary as well as local municipal elections. Actually, last uh, time we voted was during the European Parliament elections, and almost 50% of the votes were cast online. So going digital uh, has been the story in Estonia for uh, more than a decade now. And obviously, when you're online, when your services are online, when your society functions online, then you mm-hmm. need to take security seriously, and you need to make sure that uh, that uh, much like in the analog world or in the physical world, uh, uh, the government, uh, in cooperation with the uh, private sector as well as our international friends and allies, that we all take um, uh, care of security because this indeed is no longer tomorrow's challenge; it's already today's. I mean, right. safeguarding ourselves online. Right. Just out of personal curiosity, um, is how is your voter turnout with everybody voting online, or well, 50% voting online? Uh, interestingly enough, it has not really had a huge effect on voter turnout. Mm-hmm. So it could always be higher. It's, um, 
uh, but it's roughly in the same place uh, where we were before um, introducing online voting. And, and it's very comfortable for Estonians. You can vote from your home, from your living room, from your office, wherever you have a, a either a, a laptop computer or, or a cell phone. Um, so it's been made very convenient. That does not necessarily mean the turnout goes up. Uh, I guess people who um, feel comfortable um, uh, with the state of affairs or who are less engaged with political life, they, they stay home, so to say, right. even when um, uh, voting has been made very comfortable. Do you feel like there's uh, any sacrifice being made in human interaction when everything is online? Oh, sure. I think we feel it every day, uh, each of us, with 24-hour news cycles and uh, the social media, the pace of life seems to be um, at a totally different uh, level it was 10, 15, maybe 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. But uh, that just means that we as people and we as societies need to, um, need to uh, cope with this change. Um, in, the information era uh, is not going to be over anytime soon. Yeah. And uh, the more used we get to this uh, new technology, the better we'll be able to function. So that's not to say that there won't be uh, turbulence. I'm sure there will. But uh, we need to be open and uh, open-minded about the challenges we face and, uh, and do our best to teach our children to be uh, safe online. That's, uh, I guess, the only answer I can, I can uh, come up with. I, um, I think this is just me being very optimistic, but I couldn't help but think, as I was doing research on this, wow, they do everything online how much time they must have for actually spending time together and like getting out and visiting with each other since you yes. don't have to spend all your time at home filling out paperwork online yes. and forms. Well, that's absolutely true. I should have actually uh, mentioned it myself. <laughs> on average, on average, we think we save roughly five days per person every year. Oh, my goodness. Nobody, nobody ever has to stand in a line. Uh, mm. Nobody ever visits the DMV or the IRS or any other government office. Um, most services, actually all of the services except for two, and I'll mention the two, are online. So the only uh, time you have to interact with a government um, in an actual physical government office is when you need to renew your digital ID. Mm. Uh, that's when you need to show up. The two services that are not offered online are we call jokingly high-risk transactions. Uh, one is buying real estate, and that mm-hmm. makes sense. It's not a technical issue. It's an emotional issue. Yeah. Because for most people, buying real estate is the biggest uh, transaction that they ever go through in their lives. So that's uh, still uh, on paper. And the other one is getting married. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, that is still you have to show up in person uh, mm-hmm. to get married. Um, if I'm not mistaken, then... Um, uh, getting divorced uh, used to be uh, on paper only. Now you can get divorced in Estonia online, so you don't, you don't even have to you don't even have to show up to a government office for that. So everything is online. Uh, the um, government issues uh, citizens uh, what we call digital ID, which is a secure way to identify yourself online. Mm-hmm. Uh, most private enterprises that offer services online, they have like your banks. They actually um, recognize the government-issued digital ID. So when an Estonian logs on to his or her bank account, they don't use the bank's usernames or passwords. They use the national digital ID. Uh, when you want to log on to your utilities company's website to check out your your online bill, for instance, you log on not with their usernames and passwords, but with the national ID. 
And um, hence, uh, all in all, we, uh, yes, I think, save five days on average, but uh, not less importantly, we also save a lot of money uh, for, because of doing things online. So just by signing documents digitally, we think we save about 2% of our GDP annually. And that's a significant amount of money. That is about the same amount of money we spend on national defense. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. That's quite a lot. Um, that's quite a lot. Yeah. In light of the uh, the Mueller report and statement, I, I feel like a lot of us um, here in the United States are asking ourselves how how this Russian interference happened and if it will happen again, which I'm sure, you know, if there's the opportunity, it will, uh, so they say. Do you think that something like that could happen in Estonia? I know something like that, uh, something similar happened uh, quite a few years ago and... Um, once that did, you guys reinforced your cyber defense. Do you feel like something like that could happen now? Uh, well, never say never. That's the unfortunate truth of um, of life, in, in certainly in uh, in the security domain. Um, what one should do is prepare, uh, and the best preparation for for uh, attacks like these is uh, actually education. That's mm-hmm. the the best long term defense. The more aware. Uh, the society, the people are of the challenges, the more immune they will become to propaganda attacks or, or, or false narratives, fake news, if you will. Um, the fact that um, uh, we came under attack in 2007 helped us build uh, resilience uh, mm-hmm. in ways that otherwise would probably have not been possible. So I think over time, democracies are strong enough to, um, uh, and, and strong enough and flexible enough. To uh, not only survive but thrive and become stronger, the more they attack us, the stronger we'll get eventually. But we have to invest in education, and not just the high-end education, not just the, the people who specialize in, in uh, for instance, uh, cybersecurity, uh, basic education. Mm-hmm. Uh, going online or operating online is a fact of life that will stay with us for quite some time. Uh, now, we teach our children to brush their teeth. Mm-hmm. From the early ages, um, we 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 have to start teaching our children how to be safe on um, the internet as well. Uh, how not to click on links they have no idea where they came from, or how not to stick a memory stick in the computer that they just found on the street. Mm-hmm. Basic matters. We call it cyber hygiene. Uh, much like teaching again children to you know, wash their hands before eating, we have to uh, start teaching our children on uh, online safety. And once uh, we get there, uh, the society will be more, uh, not only uh, secure, but more, also more aware of the challenges that uh, confront us in the online environment. Mm. I think it's a, a skill, not just common sense. Um, yes. Uh, so I wasn't going to bring this up, but now that you brought it up, um, Estonian children, like first graders, are learning to code. <laughs> Some of them are. Uh, yeah. Those who, those who want to. Uh, yes, in several schools, that is an option uh, people take. Um, and, you know, we think that this is the economy of the future. Mm-hmm. A um, large percentage of our economy nowadays is based on ICT and, uh, sector. We think it's going to grow. Uh, there are a number of companies, well, I guess the most famous uh, in the United States is Skype, that were um, founded and created in Estonia. Mm-hmm. So this is um, this is uh, the economy of the future. We try to be as active as we can in that economy. 
So speaking of Estonian companies, you were here in Huntsville representing or advocating for an Estonian company called Milrum Robotics. Can you tell me about that? I was. It was a it was a fun event. Um, in, it was my first time actually in Alabama. So first of all, <laughs> you have a beautiful state. Oh, thanks. Welcome uh, to being I, here. I'll, I'll try to be back uh, soon. I was only, um, I think, less than 24 hours actually in the state. But indeed, uh, we uh, we were in Huntsville, we were in uh, Redstone Arsenal uh, for uh, an Estonian company. It's called Miller and Robotics, and they have developed an unmanned ground vehicle, mm-hmm. which we believe is also going to be technology uh, of the future. And uh, this was, if not the first, then certainly one of the first times in the world mm-hmm. uh, when an anti-tank missile was fired from an unmanned ground vehicle. Mm. So the missile itself was uh, Javelin. Uh, these are also produced in your state. And there was a test that um, was not only very interesting, but also, I think, very important, uh, not only for, for the Estonian company and the American companies that cooperate with the Estonian company, mm-hmm. but I think uh, for our armed forces uh, in the future, we learn a lot, and hopefully we'll be able to uh, develop this technology further. Great. So this is a uh, like a new UGV model. How is it different from like a Titan UGV? Well, it is the Titan. UGV. It is the Titan. Okay. It is the Titan. It's Titan Kinetic. Uh, or the Kinetic. Uh, uh, sorry, the, the company. I'm sorry. The Estonian company is Melrin Robotics, but the uh, uh, UGV is developed in cooperation with Kinetic, mm-hmm. a um, multinational company, and it's called Titan. Uh, it is um, uh, developed in Estonia. Uh, mm-hmm. built in Estonia, and uh, obviously, as is true with uh, most high-tech uh, defense uh, equipment, um, it can only succeed in international cooperation. So um, integrating, for instance, anti-tank missiles will require international cooperation. So this is what we were after in, in Huntsville, Alabama. Gotcha. Okay, well, great. I'm, well, I'm so glad that you got to visit. Um, we are coming to the end of the uh, interview. I wanted to know, what was it like for you growing up in Estonia? Well, I grew up in Estonia uh, when Estonia was occupied by the Soviet Union. So mm-hmm. we were the captive nation. It was obviously totally different from what, is life, what, what life is like today or what life uh, was like for um, you know, American children. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, freedom matters, and uh, you understand that best when you have no freedom. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have freedom until 1991, when we regained our independence. Um, and it's been a wonderful story ever since. Uh, ever since 1991, I think I'm I'm still I, I consider myself lucky to have seen uh, the occupation and the Soviet uh, Union, uh, because I know firsthand what not having freedom uh, not only feels like, but what it smells like, mm-hmm. what it looks like. Uh, you, can't really, you can't really know that until you witness that. Uh, so we know that freedom is not free. Uh, we know that uh, one has to fight for one's freedom. And um, we know that uh, certainly for small states, but I would argue also big ones like the United States, you can only safeguard your democracy and your freedoms in cooperation with other like-minded uh, nations, so that is what comes to mind when I'm when I'm answering that question. The best imagery um, um, that uh, sort of comes to mind when thinking back to my childhood is is you know grayness, 
uh, and dullness. There were no colors, really, uh, in the Soviet occupied Estonia. There are lots of colors in Estonia now. Mm. Your uh, your father, he's a historian. He is. You've yeah. done your research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you feel like uh, that being his occupation had any effect on your perception of Estonia as a child? Do you feel like you were more aware? Oh, I think so. I think so. Uh, he specializes in um, in several eras. One of the one of the uh, specialties of his is the, um, uh, the Stalinist era in the uh, Soviet Union, uh, the mm-hmm. purges, and uh, the concept of fear is a um, is a, a, a central interest of his. Um, but I I should also add to this that yes, even though my father was a historian, we discussed history at home. Uh, Oftentimes, in the late 1980s and during the early days of the 1990s, as we were fighting for our independence in Estonia, we call it the singing revolution, or mass uh, protests, uh, nonviolent, a lot of a lot of singing. That's where the name comes from. Mm. Uh, everybody dealt with politics. It was not just a small percentage of society that that cared about these things. Everybody was a politician. Every uh, farmer, coal miner, lawyer, doctor, everybody was a politician. Uh, children and the elderly, uh, that's how we, uh, how we want our independence. Yeah. There's a saying, you know, if, you're, if, if you don't deal with politics, politics will deal with you. Mm. And we had had five decades of politics dealing with us. We had had enough of that. So everybody started dealing with politics. That's how we won our independence. And that's how we defeated the Soviet Empire. Is that uh, your experience as a child? Is that what uh, prompted you to go into defense? Uh, I, I, yes, yes, to a certain extent, I'm sure. Uh, obviously, that uh, that guided me. Um, uh, but I've always been passionate uh, about not only defense but international affairs in general, international right. security in general. This has been a, a hobby of mine, an interest of mine. And I'm so lucky to have this as a job of mine. I mean, this is the best combination. I, I do what I like to do, uh, and people pay me for it. So it's wonderful. <laughs> that is great. Um, okay, so last question. Like, as you were talking about, Estonia has come so far. It's been a really long road. Um, and I know you must be really proud at this point, and you're getting to do what you love. You have a son and a daughter. Um, I do. Yeah. What do you dream Estonia and the world nationally, like you said, what do you dream it will be like for them when they grow up? Uh, well, my dream is for us to be free um, mm. and successful and happy. And I hope that the world will be more stable than it is today. Um, and I'm working hard to make sure that that's where we're headed. Uh, I'm absolutely convinced that uh, the only way for us to uh, maintain our, our freedom is to do it in, um, in uh, cooperation, close alliance with all other free nations. Yeah. Um, so that's why I'm working as hard as I can to strengthen also the transatlantic relationship, to strengthen NATO as the key cornerstone of that relationship. Uh, we will all succeed or we will all fail, uh, but we'll do it together. So... And making sure that these relations stay as strong as possible is very important uh, for the future. And um, I'm very hopeful that we will 
come through these turbulent times uh, stronger than the way we are today. I feel like it's really saying something given that you appreciate freedom or you didn't have it growing up. And so now you get to work towards that and you have Estonia as an example of what the world can look like. Indeed. And uh, for people who do not believe in miracles, they only need to look at our recent history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, be it security or be it technology or, or economics. In 1991, when we regained our independence, we still had Russian troops in Estonia. Mm-hmm. And yet today, for more than 15 years already, we have been members of NATO, contributors to our collective transatlantic security. In 1991, most Estonians did not have access to phones. I'm not talking about cell phones. I'm talking about landlines, ordinary phones. Most people didn't have access to phones. And yet today, we're one of the most digitally advanced nations in the world. 99.8% of bank transactions take place online in Estonia in less than 30 years. So uh, progress is possible. Uh, Progress is possible, uh, but one has to work hard to progress. That's impressive. Well, that wraps up the interview. Ambassador Vesevioff, thank you so much for interviewing. I appreciate this. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. And, uh, well, I hope to talk to you again one day. That was Estonian Ambassador Jonathan Vasevioff talking with Sarah Williamson about cybersecurity and why you should never say never when it comes to online safety or hygiene. If you missed it, you can find this interview and the rest of our stories online at wlrh.org. You can also listen for this interview with Jonathan Vasevioff again this Saturday afternoon at 2 during Sarah's show, The Arch Underground. Thanks for tuning in to Public Radio Hour tonight. This is member-supported 89.3 WLRH Huntsville Public Radio, and we are looking forward to kicking off our series of interviews and features exploring challenges we all face when taking care of elderly neighbors, family members, friends, and other people important in our lives. If you have a story you'd like to share, we want to hear from you. Just go to our website at wlrh.org and click on the Elder Care graphic. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Huntsville Public Radio. Have a great night.